This is Jason Albert, and you're listening to Nordic Nation from Faster Skier. In this episode, we speak to Canadian Nordic combined athlete Nathaniel Ma. Sadly, Ma is the last of his kind as Nordic Combined has withered in Canada since the 2010 Vancouver Games. We spoke to Ma on July 27th about his efforts to pursue his athletic dreams and his campaign to keep Calgary's ski jumping facility from closing operations this coming October. We have more information about that potential closing on the Faster Skier site. Okay, here's Ma. Hi, my name is Nathaniel Ma, and I am currently the last Nordic Combined athlete from Canada. I'm 22 years old, and I'm training from Camor, Alberta. When you say last Nordic Combined athlete in Canada, you know, say put that in context. Like, do you have any teammates, or do you have any peers, say from like age 16 through 25, that would consider themselves Nordic Combined athletes? <laughs> no, not right now. Um, we have there's two juniors right now that are I think one's 13 and one's 15 um, and they're kind of on that point where they're leaning towards the ski jumping side of things and uh, I think when they're younger they had the the goal to be Nordic combined athletes but where they are living in Calgary you know jumping is hard enough training wise and facility wise so when you try and add in cross-country skiing on top of it it is really really difficult so I think they're uh heading towards the ski jumping side of things right now. So basically from, you know, ages 15 to me, to 22, there's uh, no one in between and, and no one older or younger. So, yeah, just me. That's uh, your life. I'm trying to think of like the ecological equivalent of, you know, like an endangered species where there's like the black rhino. It's like the last male standing <laughs> or whatever. Um, yeah. You know, thinking transcontinentally i mean across canada it's you know at least as wide as the u.s you know thinking of from like say new brunswick all the way to uh you know the yukon and british columbia vancouver and specifically thinking about like the olympic legacy of vancouver that you know i think those ski jumps are based at the callahan nordic venue is that correct yep yep so in, in what capacity are those being used, you know, if there are no Nordic combined skiers in Canada currently in the pipeline besides three skiers? Right. So, uh, I mean, once the uh, the jumps or once we knew we, we got Vancouver as a bid, so we thought, you know, looking forward, we would have this brand new facility. We could make the small hills to go with it. And, you know, then we're going to have the club in Calgary and the club in the Callahan Valley. Uh, and so the small hills did get made, but what we found out was the Callahan Valley, even from Whistler uh, Village, is about a 45-minute drive. And from Squamish, it's uh, a little bit more than that. And from Vancouver, you know, it's over an hour and a half. And so the problem is if you're looking, you know, if you're an eight-year-old kid and you want to be a ski jumper and you live in Squamish or Whistler or even Vancouver, you're asking your parent every night, to, to drive you 45 minutes and up to go jump for a couple hours after school, right? And so I think for parents, it's almost, you know, if you're doing that three, four times a week, that is a, a lot of driving and, 
And so what we found out was just, even though we had the facilities there and the coaches there and kind of everything that could support the beginning of a new a new uh, club, you know, asking the, the kids and the parents to make that commitment wasn't really feasible. And so maybe a kid would do a week-long summer camp there, but that was kind of the extent of it. It, it never really, nothing ever really concrete was able to, to start and be sustained up there. And so, yeah, I think at this point, the Whistler venue is kind of on its way out or down. And I think they're still trying to, to recruit kids and, and do the summer camps. But from what I'm hearing, it's it's uh, not looking too promising right now. Okay. And then to circle back to Calgary, which um, I believe is your hometown. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Born and raised in Calgary, Alberta. Calgary has the unique situation of having, although you are, I don't know, I remember it taking me like a solid hour uh, driving the speed limit <laughs> from Calgary over to Canmore, mm-hmm. I believe. But I remember cruising from the airport towards Canmore and seeing the, I do think you can see the drum, the jumping complex on your way. I got kind of lost. So in any event, Calgary is kind of blessed with having a full-blown jumping facility. And from my understanding, that too is in jeopardy of is kind of closing down. Yeah, that uh, that is the case right now. It's it's looking like October, maybe the last month of ski jumping in Canada. That's grim news. So be, we'll we'll get to that in a bit. And before we get there, I, I am kind of curious. Um, you know, I think back to like 2010. Uh, which there was a ton of buzz about Olympic sport, obviously in North America, obviously in Canada, and and building Olympic legacies. Uh, A lot of the big sales pitch that a community might get is, you know, after the crowds are gone and the television cameras are gone, that there's a huge sporting legacy for those communities, meaning, you know, kids can, can partake in a sport that may have required huge infrastructure investment, well, we already have it. You know, speaking of, say, Vancouver or Calgary, uh, back in, I think, 1988, held the Olympics. So how did you get involved with the sport, you know, the sport of Nordic Combined, which, you know, is already kind of sadly a bit niche when people think of Nordic sport? Yeah, so um, I lived in in Calgary. We lived about 10-minute drive from the, uh, the 1988 site where the ski jumps are. And so every day, just driving by, you know, wherever we went, and I was always just kind of with my mom as, uh, before I even started going to uh, elementary school. So I'd always drive around, and, and I, I remember, well, I don't remember this, but uh, apparently when I was four years old, I would, every time we drove by, I would, I would point at the jumps and, and tell my mom that I wanted to go off of them. And so as a four-year-old kid pointing at the highest point or the highest structure in Calgary saying like, yeah, let's, let's go send that thing. Uh, I'm sure she wasn't overly thrilled, but, um, you know, that's, she, she definitely understood that I always, I would always say that. And then, uh, by the time I was six, she found a program, just came across her brochure that, you know, allowed kids to go and, and try the ski jumping thing, which, uh, I think this is still a, a huge common misconception, but when you think of uh, ski jumping, you just think of the big things. And so, as a six-year-old or a parent of a six-year-old, you don't really expect that to be even possible to, to send your kid off of that thing. But that's uh, in the sport, that's pretty usual to start that young. And 
And so she let me go and sign up and, and try it out. And obviously right away I was uh, pretty hooked with it. And um, I had alpine ski before, obviously, and I had, so I had, you know, definitely the ski skills on the alpine slopes. And I, I basically just applied that to the jumping side of things. And uh, that was it, you know, hooked, just go down the, the ramp and get in the air. And that's what I loved about the skiing side of things. So it was that easy. And as you progressed, when did like Nordic combine come on your radar? I think also like there is uh, groom skiing at least near that venue. Right. So yeah, when I, up until kind of recently, they had the cross country course there and it used to be actually like something like four or five K. Cause the, I mean, in Calgary, they used to be able to hold uh, continental cups, which were world cup bees. And I think even when I started, they were still able to hold uh, continental cup events there which I didn't even realize because as a, as a six-year-old kid, I think you're just totally oblivious to that sort of thing. But um, yeah, I'd have to look back, but I'm pretty sure there were, they were holding, or I guess World Cup B at that time uh, at Canada Olympic Park. So the way it works in North America, uh, I mean, most, of, most clubs in North America is you jump, but you also just cross-country ski. And uh, I, the reason we do that is obviously just to have um, the all-round sport development but also because if when it comes to the time for an athlete to choose around that 14, 12, 14 years old, uh, if they do choose to go Nordic combined, you know, we've, we've developed the kids. So they have that ability on the cross country side to make that switch. Um, yeah. And I mean, same with ski jumping. It's, it's definitely not going to hurt, uh, use a ski jumper to be able to cross country ski. And if you look at every other athlete, they're successful athletes in the world. They, uh, they do more than one sport growing up. It's very rare that they just do the one sport and that's it. So that's kind of why they push that in, uh, in North America. You know, in 2010, there was a viable, uh, Canadian Nordic combined team. And I think prior to 2010 or during the games, there were approximately eight athletes involved with the national program. And that dropped off considerably after what happened there, because that was at a point for you where you're getting involved and you're getting involved um, a few years later at the international level. Right. So um, when we, when Canada, I guess, found out that we, we won the bid for the 2010 Olympics, uh, and I'm sure this happens with every home nation that finds out they're going to host Olympics, there's this huge influx of support and money towards all of the winter sports and Nordica Vine and ski jumping definitely got a lot of that. So kind of the generation above me was uh, named team 2010. And that's so that the game plan was that that group was kind of around that 18 years old plus or minus. And so the goal for that team was to be able to compete at the Olympics at 2010. So they had this four-year plan, they had the money, they had support, and things were looking pretty good. They had a, a good group of guys, they had a good coaching system, and they, they had that plan in place. And unfortunately, I was just that generation lower, so I wasn't able to really get in the group and tag on to it. But what happened was a lot of those athletes weren't able to qualify. You know, we only had Jason Maslicki at the 2010 Olympics, and he just snuck in and, and the one below him, Wes Saville, was uh, really, really close, but also the alternate. So everyone else who didn't qualify for the Olympics, they're, um, they're around that 18 years old range. They just finished school and they missed out on the Olympic Games. And now 
you know, you have to decide as a as an athlete, push on for four more years, knowing that you're not going to really have that funding anymore because the Olympics are gone, and you know you're sacrificing. Basically, I mean, you're putting your life on hold more or less to to do something like that and commit to it. And uh, most of the guys didn't see that kind of panning out. And so, uh, yeah, the team went from this big, awesome training group with lots of talent and lots of young up-and-coming athletes uh, with a coaching staff and just turned into two athletes and no coaching staff pretty much overnight, it seemed like. So I think during the 2010 Olympics, I was about 15 years old. And finally was uh, at that point where I would have been able to start training with that older group and having something to chase and, and push towards. And then all of a sudden it kind of just fell apart. So after the, the 2010 Olympics, it was uh, the uh, Wesley Saville and Sebastian Dandaran were the, the two that stayed. Um, there was no coaching. And then there was me about five years younger hanging out. Just uh, And all three of us were a little bit on our own at that point. Were you all based around Calgary? Yeah, yeah, so because Calgary is the only working facility, any Nordica minor ski jumper from Canada is originally from Calgary. But at that point, the Calgary facilities were, were starting to get on the older side. The biggest, the largest hill, the K114, had been closed already for seven years by the time 2010 came around. And every other hill, you know, it's the sport progresses pretty quickly. And so if the hills don't progress with it, then um, they're, they're a little bit outdated. So by that time, those two older athletes, Sebastian Dandran and, and Wesley Saville, because they had finished their high school as well, they uh, basically all winter they're in Europe. And then in the summers, they were usually down in Park City training with the, the U.S. guys, which kind of left me uh, on my own. <laughs> And then uh, it sounds like after high school, then you tapped in with, I mean, you wanted to make a bigger commitment to the sport and moved south to Colorado. Exactly. Yeah. I think for a Canadian Nordic combined athlete, if you, if you want to have a team and a coach and facilities, you pretty much have to, uh, I mean, at least the way we'd been doing it for the last five years is, is to go down to the States and work with those guys. And that's what Wesley Saville had been doing for years and that's what Sebastian Dandaran did and even the older guys before them like I know Jason Maslicki worked a lot down there and Max Thompson was was around uh, down in the states so yeah as soon as I literally I think the the two days after I graduated I uh, packed up and went down to to Steamboat Springs to work with the National Development US team and uh, those guys that's kind of when things started to really become serious. But what is that relationship with? Are you working with a specific club there? Yeah, so so when I moved down to Steamboat after high school, it was still uh, USA Nordic was, or sorry, USA Nordic combined was, it was still part of the ski team. Yeah. Um, and the team I was with was uh, Steamboat Springs Winter Sports Club. So though it was the national development group, they trained as the Steamboat Springs Winter Sports Club. So uh, politically, it was super easy just to go and join uh, basically a different club. So I was switching from my home club in Calgary, LTS Nordic, and going to Steamboat Springs Winter Sports Club. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't very difficult looking at it like a, a U.S. Nordic combined sport in Canada. It was more just switching teams, which, you know, I mean, even across country, it's, it's pretty common and 
to switch and move like that. So, yeah, it was it was pretty much that. And then I would pay my team fees and club fees to Steamboat Springs Winter Sports Club, and that was it, just part of the team and fit in with that group. How did it evolve to where it's like, hey, let's bring Nathaniel to you know a U.S. team camp or something, you know? And I am familiar enough with Nordic Combine to know that if everybody's in Steamboat, then essentially the top competitors in the U.S. or that represent the U.S. are probably in Steamboat. A lot of them are you know reside there and train there. What what does that look like, or how does that relationship work when you would start to tap into getting support? from USA Nordic. Right. So I think we have to backtrack backtrack a little bit because it took it took some time to get to where we are now. Um, when it was just me training with the Steamboat Winter Sports Club, it was super easy because if they were going to Europe on a training camp, then you know I was fully part of the team. And even though I represented a different nation, um, I was still paying the same club fees that the other US guys were paying. And I was still... Uh, part of the exact same team as them. So as far as training camps, traveling and even competing, it was, you know, I just fit in there no different from any of the other guys and we would travel. And then uh, what actually ended up happening was because of my injury, my concussion, that's when I had to move back home for quite some time. And and that's when things kind of shifted and the USD team uh, dropped order combined and Everything got kind of messy and complicated and confusing, and and the Steamboat Springs Warner Source Club guys that I was training with became uh, under the U.S. Ski Team umbrella, which is now the USA Nordic umbrella. Um, and so that level where I am now is the national team level. So once I came back from my injury, I was able to work a little bit with some of the Canadian athletes, uh, and then once that fell apart again. Uh, that's when I, I started trying to figure out options because doing this sport, as you know, you, it's it's not possible for me to go to Europe by myself and compete. Like I can't illegally under the FIST standards. Like I'm not allowed to go to a coach's meeting for myself, and I, you know, I can't flag myself on the hill and I can't wax my own skis and, and warm up. So we, uh, myself and basically with guidance through Wesley Savile, who had retired in that time that I was injured. Um, he kind of helped guide me and like, because he had done it in the past where he kind of worked with the US team, that's kind of how he set it up for me and, and how it worked more or less is we pay a hefty fee um, and I am able to work with the US ski team. So they will provide me with the transport to the competitions uh, Fist luckily pays for the accommodation uh, on competition weekends, which helps a lot. And then um, they would do the wax support. And uh, as far as coaching on the hill, they would do uh, what they could to the best of their ability. But obviously, um, being that they are the U.S. team, the U.S. athletes get priority. So that's um, in the winter, that's mostly how it works. And it's just a little bit of like, we'll give you this much money and this is what you provide. And then we sign off of it and and go from there. Canada has some government sponsored funding, Uh, you know, there's the own the podium program. And I believe it's through on the, on the podium that athletes can get carded. And depending on, 
your success the previous year, you know, it's sort of a tiered system about how much money each athlete gets. Does Nordic Combined Canada get any funding at all from the government anymore? So Nordic Combined Canada um, is the only sport in Canada that does has not received any financial support from Own the Podium. I said, yeah, they're just the only sport that hasn't received any money from Own the Podium in the last 10 years. And I'm talking every Olympic sport from summer and winter. Nordic Combined is the only one that hasn't. And so how the system works in Canada is it's, it's based off of the top athlete's result. And then they use more or less like a trickle-down economics way of doing it. So if we look at cross-country Canada, uh, the way they, they look at it is they look at how many athletes were in the top, so many, say, top 13 on the World Cup this season, and they go from there and decide, so we'll say cross-country Canada, because of these few World Cup athletes' results, they will get you know, eight carding spots for men, eight for women, and then cross-country Canada then decides which of their eight athletes receive that carding. Um, and that's how it works with most of the sports. It's the better your top-end athletes do, the more carding spots you get as a national sport organization. So even though, so for if we look at other sports, um, like freestyle skiing, where the top, you know, will we'll sweep the Olympics or all five Canadians at the Olympics will be in the top 10, you know, they are going to have a lot of carding spots down to, to athletes competing maybe even at the provincial level. So even though I'm competing at the World Cup level, because no one above me has, or even myself, has gone uh, a, basically a top 13 at the Olympics is the criteria right now, there's no carding spots for Nordic combined. So that's more or less how it works in Canada. Is it's dependent on how well your, your, top, your top athletes in your sport do. So you did... You know, you did compete in uh, 2017 in Lati at the World Championships. Um, and can you explain a little bit about, you know, what that experience was like in terms of, you know, functioning as an, inter you know, a, an athlete representing Canada and, you know, how you got your support and, you know, how did you make it work? So going into that uh, 2017 season, that was actually my first season back after missing the last two years of training uh, because of my, my injury. So Right, yeah. So uh, just riding, I, I took a pretty hard tumble on the road bike and uh, hit my head real good. So that, uh, you know, it, it was a concussion and it, just didn't go away for 18 months. So for 18 months, I was I was not able to train or, I mean, pretty much just do basic things. Like, I couldn't even go to work. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't do much. So it was pretty much just uh, my room and the doctor's office for for a lot of a lot of my life um, for that that time period, which was uh, pretty tough. But um, you know, eventually with the with a lot of help from some good people at uh, Balanced Health Sports, they were able to get me going again and, and training again. And so when I went into that 2017 season, um, you know, I sat down with Wes, who is more or less my my uh, 
coach or, or advisor, even manager, you could say. And we sat down and we went out with some goals. And uh, the summer went really well. Um, obviously, the fitness was was far off from where it needed to be after two years. But jumping-wise, it was going uh, pretty well. And, and we sat down and, and came up with some realistic goals. And, and the goal for me was mostly just to get back into the sport. Like, uh, there was the, the goal of getting a top 30 result in the Continental Cup which I had never gotten before. And world champs was kind of like this distant goal. That's like, if you're really close and we think it will be beneficial, then we'll go. But most likely you're, you know, you're not there yet. And so it was, it wasn't really like my main goal for the season. The main goal was just getting back into the sport and getting back into competing. But it was, uh, it was discussed and it was in kind of the background of my head and, of my mind and I think it was a couple weeks before world champs that I had uh, I think I was like 34th in a continental cup race and like 10 seconds out of points it was like sprinting for points basically and um, the the US coach that I was working with and uh, Wes Savile sat down and, and talked it out and, and then they basically just gave me the green light and said like hey let's let's go to Lati and let's basically go learn more or less and and that's what that whole trip was about and you know we we didn't go into it i wasn't expecting to go out there and and be fighting for top tens or anything i was i was going there more or less to see what a world championship event is like to see what those top nordic combined athletes are are how they're they're acting and what they're doing to prepare for an event that big and the, the biggest reason we went is so if I did qualify for the Olympics the next year, I had an idea of what it was going to look like. Um, and that's, it was just totally like an educational experience. Yeah. So you mentioned you don't jump much in Calgary or at all anymore. So, you know, what is the status of the jumping facility in Calgary? It sounds like, and I think you had mentioned earlier that October is sort of the deadline date for closure at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the agreement that Winsport made with, I believe, on the podium, and this was before the this uh, Korea Olympics, was they will keep the jumps open for for this long, up to this till October, I guess, was the date, and they received this much money from on the podium, and that was kind of the agreement that uh, Winsport signed, and now that contract's coming to an end, uh, Winsport is saying that they, I mean, they are claiming that the jumps cost some absurd amount of money to keep open. Like it was, it was like insane. I can't remember the number they gave us, but it was, it was totally blown out of proportion. And, and considering like at, at the Windsport facilities or sorry, Windsport is um, now Canada Olympic park. So there's no confusion. Cause I've kind of switching to the referral of those, but um, how it works. And that's the facility. That's sort of the facility itself. And I think they have sort of a sh- small little downhill area and like a freestyle jumping right. area as well. Yeah, Is that yeah and, that's, okay. and uh, they also own the, the luge track and the, the bobsled track there. So they have a bunch of facilities there, like hockey and everything. So Windsport is, is kind of the owners of those facilities. And uh, organizations like Canadian Sports Institution are kind of within those facilities. So Windsport owns it and... They kind of rent the space out to like 
today's sport institution or the governing bodies like Luge Canada, Boston Canada, etc. Like all the sliding sports, um, like Hockey Canada has spots in there. Like a bunch of NSOs are basically under the wind sport facilities umbrella. Um, but how it works is each sport, wind sport receives money from, you know, whether it be on the podium or corporate sponsors or the NSOs themselves to keep those facilities running and open. So because sliding in Canada, all the sliding sports do so well, they have that money to pay wind sport. And so wind sport, you know, they're not making money off of having the, the track there, but they're not losing nearly as much as, as they would at, on the ski jumping facility. The difference with the jumping facilities is that our coaches and our athletes are the ones who are actually building the ski jumps every winter and maintaining them throughout the summer. So Windsport provides the coaches with, or, or the, even the volunteers, with the snow blowing materials or the uh, equipment, but it's the coaches and the volunteers who are out there overnight actually blowing the snow and shaping the ski jumps. And through the summer, they're the ones you know, making the repairs to the plastic or the tiles and everything like that. So Windsport actually provides three, uh, three employees for the entire ski jumping facility and they help out um, with stuff like running the chairlift and and providing the water making sure the water for the in the summer is working and that the uh, the cat for grooming the landing hills is, is up to date but otherwise it's it's our club members that are actually doing the work on the ski jumps so when they they come back and say it costs this much for them to keep the jumps open it's unrealistic because they're not really doing a whole a whole lot to keep the, the facilities open. So that's that's our members from from our clubs and volunteers that are the ones actually doing the work. And so there are still kids in the community that are getting involved with jumping in some capacity. It sounds like. Oh yeah, there's there's still um, around three hundred members in the LTS Motor Ski Club right now. So there's three hundred kids more or less, <laughs> that are basically getting any sort of future that they would dream of in this sport taken away overnight. Yeah, it, I have to say, it's like this interesting debate of like, you know, when you start, you know, obviously this is how the world rules. You know, you have people that look at that and there's the dream. You want that dream to not be extinguished. Yeah, uh, But then there's people at the other end of the spectrum that are you know, they're counting pennies and they're like, holy crap, we're losing a ton of money. Um, that's a tough, that's a tough choice. So is there some sort of online campaign or something that people can get information about, you know, how things are transpiring? Right. Yeah, we have, um, I mean, we have an online petition and, and that's our kind of one of our steps, but we're just trying to re at this point, we're just trying to reach out. Um, we're trying to get the word out there that, that this is happening. And the biggest thing right now, and the, and the thing that we've done in the past, because this is, I mean, this is not the first time that, uh, that we've faced this problem. I think I was nine years old when, when the jumps were first threatened to close down. And what we did back then is we got every single athlete, every single parent, every member to basically stand at the bottom of the day lodge for the ski hill and I had a little shirt that said, save our jumps. And I had a little donation box and we were out there. That was training for the night as we were out there standing around, just begging people for money to give to Winsport to allow us to keep using these jumps. And that was nine when I did that. And 
you know, it's it's almost it's I've probably done similar similar situations like that three four times already since since then. And um, the last time this occurred, we luckily had some big corporate sponsors like uh, I believe it was Aviva um, Insurance that came in and and they said, look, we'll pay Winsport. You just slap a big old sticker on on all your suits on your helmets and on the jumps themselves, and and we'll pay Winsport that money to allow you guys to keep jumping. And so. Right now, that's kind of what we're looking for right now is we're looking for that more or less savior that's that's going to be like, we're going to pay Winsport the money that they ask and, and you guys are allowed to keep working on your own ski jumps and prepping your own ski jumps. So these these young athletes, these these kids that have these huge goals and dreams are, are allowed to keep training. And we're not talking like, I mean, not to say like, but we're not talking like, okay, $2 million is needed by October to function no we're talking like like fifteen thousand. okay yeah for like to a, keep that for, to keep that open for another winter yeah yeah i mean that's it's not much because besides the snow making cost uh that's pretty much it like that is where they're uh where they're losing money really on us other than i mean right now they're their dream goal for wind sport is to tear down the jumps and put in um, more like a, a, a terrain park that they can make money off. And right now they, they have a zip line going off of the biggest ski jump. Um, and I mean, that's a money pit. There's they're renting out the biggest tower to cell phone companies to use as a cell phone tower. So they're getting money off of that. And then uh, the cross country course, which we did have up till about three, four years ago, that was turned into a tube hill because the cross country course wasn't making enough money. And even though, I mean, on a Thursday night you go there, we have, there's, there's four cross country and, and biathlon clubs based out of Calgary. And so if you go there on a, a Tuesday, Thursday night, I mean, there's, you can't even ski. There's like hundreds and hundreds of these little kids there. And, um, they pretty much just took it away and, and put a two pill there because the two pill makes money. And so, <laughs> I know. I yeah, know and that's that, it. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard that story before. It's a horrible, right. I mean, it's horrible to think like this super healthy lifestyle gets supplanted by gravity in a plastic tube. Right. And, um, you know, like UOP has done a great job of being able to find this compromise between having the facilities for the world class, world, uh, these world class facilities for these athletes to train on but also being able to profit off them well. So they have the zip line going down the ski jumps, um, but the ski jumps are still open. They didn't have to close one down for that. And, and they have, they run tubing down the landing hills in the summer. And, you know, that's another way to make money. Like they, they figured out these ways to have, have basically, you know, the, the general public to be able to use the facilities and that profit gets turned into actually supporting the athletes to use them as well. Whereas, the, the system they have right now is that we're going to make money off of it and nothing is going for the athletes. Like it's not about the athletes, even though we say it's about the athletes, it's not about the athletes. Like you can't, you can't justify taking out an entire cross country course that hundreds of kids use. And I mean, not even kids, but just the general public use because it's not making as much money as a tube hill might, you know? So you, you can't claim that you're a, a grassroots uh, charity that's to, 
supporting athletes when you go ahead and turn around and, and do something like that. So that's what exactly what we're seeing with the jumps here is, is they're not making a profit off of it. And they think they potentially could be making a profit off of it. And so that's, I mean, that's besides the stats and the, and the numbers that they're giving, like at the end of the day, that's what it is. And I might get in a whole lot of trouble for saying that, but I mean, at this point, the worst that happens is, is what they're trying to do anyways, and it's close the jumps. So that's just the reality of it. Right. Well, good luck with everything. Um, and uh, good luck also with the mission in, in Calgary and keeping that enterprise, you know, the jumping enterprise viable there. Anything I didn't ask that you want to add? Anything you want to mention? I don't, I don't want to like plug myself, but if there's a way like... Go for it. Plug yourself. <laughs> okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see how I approach this. Yeah, I think a lot of people listening to this might, you know, and I hope this isn't... This wasn't, you know, my goal is to come off as, as complaining and, and basically just complaining and moaning for the last hour. Like, that is not the goal. That's just the situation I'm in. And I think the more people that understand that, the more likely it is that there's going to be that one person that that comes over and says, like, hey, like, I'm supporting your cause and I believe in you. And, and here's some financial help for you to, to keep training and keep pushing because right now, like... I'm lucky enough that my dad's done really well uh, financially. And so he's the one that's able to support me in this dream. And I do as much work as I can while training to, to help with it. But, you know, if, if I have that support that it, that makes this more possible, so I'm able to go and, and train in Europe with a coach and not more or less be sleeping on couches of random people, like that's going to be something that makes a huge difference in, in my performance. So, um, yeah, I mean, my, my goal wasn't to, to complain and kind of bum everybody out. Uh, that's just kind of the reality of it. And I'm, I mean, I am optimistic towards the future and every morning I'm waking up and, and just happy to be able to even to, to live a lifestyle like this. I mean, I know I understand that there's so many people in the world that have these, these goals and, you know, want to be able to do something like this and just they don't have the financial support to do that. So I'm, you know, I'm extremely grateful that I do get to do this even though it is hard and even though there's a lot of things that are, are pushing me to stop like I, I understand that it is a gift and it's it's definitely something I don't take lightly so that if, if there's anything I want people to take away from this it's that um, you know I'm really grateful that I get to do this every day and if they want to help me and if they want to get behind my cause and that's more than I could uh, could ever ask for so. Well, thanks for your time. And um, I'm actually, it's it's been good to kind of, you know, have some assumptions about the situation up in Canada and be like, oh, I didn't realize it was that dire. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for uh, hearing me out and, and looking into it. And I appreciate that a lot. Thanks for listening. 